But I wanted to open with a uh, prayer for our nation that was written by Billy Graham. So would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we praise you for your goodness to our nation, giving us blessings far beyond what we deserve. We know all is not right with America. We deeply need a moral and a spiritual renewal to help us meet the many problems that we face. And we know that no party and no person No Republicans, no Democrats, not Mr. Trump, and not Mrs. Clinton can turn things around. Only you can. So we ask, Father, that you would convict the people of our nation of our many sins against you. Help us to turn to you in repentance, those of us who know you, who are called by your name, your church. May we turn to you in repentance and in faith and set our feet on the path of your righteousness and peace. We pray today for the people of our nation. Give them the wisdom to know what is right and to have the courage to do it. You have said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And may this be a new era for America as we humble ourselves and acknowledge that you alone are our Savior and Lord. And thank goodness, thank you, that we can count on the fact that you are still in control. You sit on your throne and you orchestrate all things according to your will and your ways. And in that we can trust. And we thank you for that. And now I ask that you would go before us today. Um, Help us to think clearly. Help me to think clearly, to speak quickly. Um, And may your son and he alone be honored and glorified. We pray in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our lesson today is Seeking Truth. Seeking Truth. I don't know if you can see the brief form of the outline that I put up here, but there was a grease board available, so I took advantage of it. And I know some of you in the back probably can't see it, but you'll get your email lesson sometime this week, and it'll have the fuller form of the outline. But do you remember back in our, we're in Daniel 7. Did I say open up to Daniel chapter 7? In our coverage of verses 1 to 8, Um, In our first lesson on this chapter, which was entitled, Lions and Leopards and Bears, oh my, (laughs) from the song of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, we discussed both Daniel's introduction to his first God-given dream, and then we looked at the dreadful invasion of the apocalyptic beasts of that dream, the Eagle-winged lion, the lopsided bear, the four-headed, four-winged leopard, and the dreadful beast with the iron teeth. And then in the second lesson on chapter 7, which was entitled The Final Dominion Transition, we discussed the divine intervention aspect of that dream. The judgment scene, the court scene in heaven, uh, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, and the thrones around him, and all that. We discussed when the fourth beast, and the whole, really, the whole times of the Gentiles would be judged when the Son of Man would return, um, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And now today, we turn to verses 15 to 28, and this is the divine interpretation of that dream, which was given to Daniel at his request. Even while he was still sleeping, he's still in his bed dreaming, he had the conscious desire for more insight about what he knew was a God-given prophetic revelation. He was not satisfied to depend solely upon his own gift of dream interpretation. Remember, he had been given the gift of interpreting dreams. We've seen that because he's interpreted some of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but he did not rely on himself to interpret his own dream. Well, after all, he is still in heaven, isn't he? In his dream, he's up in heaven. Might as well ask one of those heavenly beings to interpret the dream for him, and then he would know with 100% accuracy that it was right. He was getting the right interpretation. So he wasn't satisfied to depend on himself, nor did he think to himself that it wasn't important to know God's plan for the future, that he merely needed to live out the rest of his life you know, as godly as he could to be the best example that he could for others and leave the prophecy aspect of divine revelation for others to figure out. You know, that is the attitude of many people today, many Christians today. 
But Daniel wanted more revelation. He wanted more understanding. He wanted more insight and insight and enlightenment and more truth from God. And when a person, this is a very important Bible principle, when a person genuinely, sincerely, deeply within desires to know more, to understand more about God and about his plans and his programs and, and the future and how to be godly. When a person desires more light about him, what does he do? Does he honor that desire? He does. Now, you have to do your part, which is why you're here today, I assume. You want to dig deeper. You want to know more, don't you? Because this isn't exactly a fluffy little Bible study. We get down deep, pretty deep. <laughs> you're laughing. I know. <laughs> should get a degree, right, when you finish. But um, the more you desire to know, the more he will give you. But you have, you have to start somewhere, don't you? We had a girl yesterday said she didn't even know what a Gentile. What do you mean by Gentile? I mean, everybody has to begin somewhere. When I was 32 years old, all I knew basically was Noah built an ark and there Jesus died on the cross. And I don't know why. You know, I didn't know anything at 32, but you have to start somewhere and you dig deeper. And guess what? We could dig our entire lives and never get to the bottom of the truth. How many of us knew what a, a chiasm was a few weeks ago? <laughs> There is no end. I think we'll be studying about God. We will be for throughout eternity. But he will honor that seeking soul. So the title for our lesson today is Seeking Truth. That's our subject because it is something that every single believer should be engaged in doing his or her entire life. We should continuously seek to know more and more and more about God's word because it is the means by which he revealed truth to us. And if ye shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. And don't you want to be free? I mean, when we are saved, we're set free from sin, the bondage to sin and death. But I want to be set free from other things, too, like anxiety. <laughs> I got a lot of anxiety today. You know, we fight it. But I want to be set free from those kind of things and just trust in him fully. All right, in our breakdown of this last section of chapter 7, we're going to take a quick look at Daniel's pierced reaction to his dream, and he was pierced by it. We'll talk about that in verse 15. Then we're going to look at his probing requests to gain further understanding of his dream. And last, we'll look at just verse 28, the last verse of the chapter, his pensive response to the interpretation of the dream that he receives from a divine being. So let's begin with his pierced reaction, and that's in verse 15. Daniel says, I was grieved, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by. Now you have to go back up to verse 10 to see who was standing by. Thousands, thousands, ministering, 10,000. So he goes toward probably an angel there and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. Well, at this point, Daniel tells his readers how he had been feeling. Now, he was still within the confines of his dream. You think that's strange? I don't. Have you ever still been sleeping and having a dream and you have feelings about it? I wake up sometimes from a dream and my heart is beating fast. So he was still dreaming, but he was having feeling, feelings in the dream. He was grieved in his spirit, he says. And then he says his spirit in the midst of his body because of the visions that he had seen. They troubled him. Now, the Aramaic, remember, we're still in Aramaic. We won't be after this lesson. We'll be back to Hebrew. But in the Aramaic, the literal meaning of some of these words is fascinating. The word grieved literally means pierced. He was pierced. He said the dream visions pierced his spirit. Then the Aramaic word translated in the midst actually uh, speaks of a sheath. S-H-E-A-T-H, -E like a scabbard, you know, that which you put a sword into is a sheath. We don't use that word very much. Um, so Daniel was, was likening his body as a sheath for his spirit. Interesting. His spirit sheathed very tightly 
within his body was pierced by what he had seen in his dream. This is, this is really a beautiful picture. It's a perfect truth of our physical bodies. Think of your body as the, a sheath. <laughs> um, and our, our sheaths temporarily house our invisible spirits, don't they? Okay? Our real person is our inner person. That's our spirit. These outer things are just casings, you know, shells, temporary shells. Our real person is inside. And now you think about a sword and its sheath. They're two independent things, aren't they? You can take the spirit, I mean, the, the, the sword out of the sheath. And it is still, it still exists, doesn't it? Actually, when you take that sword out of its sheath, that's when you can really use it. That's when it's really usable, you know, like Zorro. Um, so as a sword, think of this, as a sword is independent of its sheath and continues to exist outside of its sheath, so too will our spirits continue to exist when they are drawn out of this outer sheath, our bodies. And when are our, our, our spirits drawn out of their sheaths? When? At death. At death. But they'll continue to exist, right? And one day we'll get a brand new sheath. That's glorified sheath. So God's revelation, he's saying here, God's revelation pierced straight to his spirit sheathed within his body. Now that piercing effect of God's revelation, because this was God's word being revealed to Daniel about the future, that illustrates another great truth that was later stated by the author of the book of Hebrews. And some of you may have already been thinking about this verse as I was talking about being pierced. Think about the word of God. The word of God, okay, it is kind of the same idea. It's called a sword, right, two-edged sword. It is, it is sheathed in this binding, okay? And if I, if I keep it closed, it doesn't really, I can't really use it, right? It's, it's inside there. But when you open up the word of God and use it, read it, speak it, it becomes a two-edged sword, doesn't it? And doesn't it say in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick. What's that mean? Alive. Just like our spirits, it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, piercing even to the dividing of sunder, asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. I mean, right to the inner man. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the, of the heart. I just thought that was so beautiful. Such a beautiful, when you understand the actual meaning of the words there. The political turmoil that would dominate the world and oppress Daniel's people through at least three more kingdoms that sounded by his dream even worse than Babylon. I mean, Babylon was a winged lion. That wasn't too bad. But then the beasts get worse and worse, don't they? So they get, it gets worse, and he thinks, oh, man, this is not good news. I mean, that, that news stabbed him to the heart. Yes, there was indeed the good news of the coming son of man. That was good news. But before his arrival was all that bad news of the crushing, stomping, biting, breaking in pieces, beasts, all those awful beasts. Plus, there was the bad news of that little horn, whoever he was with his big, boasting, blasphemous mouth and that special heavenly court scene to judge him had to mean that he was a pretty bad dude. He was going to be pretty bad. There's a whole session in heaven just to judge him. He has to be pretty evil. So Daniel was overwhelmed to realize how much more his people would experience before their Messiah, the Son of Man, the crushing stone, the smiting stone, would come. Now, he didn't have any idea that there were going to be two comings of the Messiah, but he, he's getting the picture. It's going to be a long time before he does come. And he's getting near to the end of the 70 years. He'd been reading the scrolls of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 29.10, it says that they would be in captivity in Babylon for how many years? 
70 years. He's getting close to the end of that. Because this is the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar reigned for 14 years. And then, you know, the night of the handwriting, that was the end of the kingdom of Babylon. So he knows he's about 13, 14 years away from the end. And yet he's thinking, oh, goody, goody. Finally, the time of suffering for my people is going to be over because we'll be allowed to return to the land. But this dream tells him, no, no, the time of your, the suffering for your people is actually just beginning is a head of gold. There was that whole statue to go through, right? So you know he's stabbed to the heart. This is not good news. I mean, there is good news at the end, but in the meantime, there's a lot of bad news. So in his statement, the visions of my head troubled me. Now, the Aramaic word for troubled means alarmed. They alarmed me. They, they troubled me. They frightened me. And that word is always used, it's used many times, but it's always used in the context of receiving divine revelation. And you know what? It wasn't the unknown mysteries of the vision that disturbed Daniel. I'm sure he figured out quite a bit of it. He'd had many years to meditate on Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. This one pretty closely corresponds, doesn't it? So I, it wasn't what he didn't know that was troubling him. It was what he did know that was troubling him. And we know that because when he wakes up in verse 28, guess what? He's still troubled. He's still perturbed about it all. Sadly, a lot of people scoff at Bible eschatology. Remember, eschatology is the study of end times. A lot of people make fun of Armageddon and all that stuff, you know, that we believe in. Because of the Bible. Um, sadly, with one excuse or another, even a lot of Christians do not study end times uh, Bible prophecy. Have you come across that in your lifetime? There are churches that don't even get into it. They avoid Daniel. They avoid the apocalyptic books. They don't talk about Revelation. Many pastors I have talked to over the years say, well, I don't teach that to my people. And with one excuse or another, they say maybe it's just too difficult to understand. You know, with all of its symbolism, it is kind of crazy when you think about all the horns and the heads and the wings and the toes. And the <laughs> but it's all symbolism, right? It's figurative symbolism. And they say, well, that's just too hard to figure out. Uh, and then a lot of them don't study it because they think it's already all past. The preterists, remember we talked about the full preterists? They think all this happened back in 70 AD. Jesus has already returned and we're living in the millennial kingdom. If that's the truth, whoa, <laughs> that's pretty sad. Do you ever see lions laying down with lambs? And didn't it say in uh, Revelation that when he returns, every eye will see him? Have you seen him? I don't think the people in 70 AD saw him either. Anyway, um, so some people don't study it because they have the wrong <laughs> way of uh, interpreting. Or they'll say that um, understanding the future is not relevant. It just isn't relevant for their walk with the Lord today. I don't need to worry about that. I'll leave that to the prophecy buffs, you know, the ones that get all excited about prophecy. I'll just walk my life with the Lord and not, not get involved in it. Um, but wasn't Daniel's example to us, hasn't it been exemplary in every way? extraordinary in every way. I mean, wasn't he bold? Wasn't he brave? Wasn't he uncompromising? Wasn't he faithful? Wasn't he kind? Wasn't he compassionate? I mean, what other words can you use for him? Just about every example, he is just perfect. He was a prayer warrior. I mean, he was willing to face death for his faith, on and on and on. So he is also our example in this situation. He may have been pierced to the inner man and alarmed and frightened by what he understood about his dream and he's going to learn even more um but it didn't stop him it did not stop him from wanting to have greater understanding about god's plans not only for his day but for the future for his people for the generations to follow he was a man of god who sought truth seeking truth and the more truth we seek to know i know from my own life the more he will give the more you're willing to dig and get, for that treasure, he'll give it to you. He'll reward you with great treasures when you're willing to do your part. And by, by the way, the people that say they don't, they're not interested in prophecy, I have a big problem with them because 27% of the Bible is prophecy. So you're going to just throw out about one-fourth of the Bible? 
Out of the 31,124 verses of the Bible, 8,352 of them contain prophetic material. That's 27%. So, what about that? And thanks to Daniel's probing questions, we should thank him that he asked these questions because we have the contents of the rest of the chapters of chapter 7. I was thinking about some of the parts of the Bible we might not have if people didn't ask questions of the Lord or God. You know, the disciples asked a lot of questions. On one, one event, they were at the Mount of Olives, and they said, tell us what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And he gave them the Olivet Discourse. We might not have the Olivet Discourse if it wasn't for that. Another, in the upper room, on the night of his arrest, they asked him a bunch of questions. And we have the Farewell Discourse, which is a wonderful John 14, 15, and 16, full of comforting truths about the, our lives. Anyway, what would we have if people hadn't asked probing questions? So Daniel's desire to learn more about the meaning of his dream, it tells us, drew him near to one of them that stood by. And from this particular being, this heavenly being, he, first of all, Daniel, made a general request to which he got a general answer. If you only want to know generalities, if you just want to know the big picture, you'll just have an understanding of the big picture. But then, Daniel, that wasn't sufficient. He goes on to ask a specific request to which he gets a more specific answer. If you want to know more details, keep coming to this Bible study, right? (laughs) Details and details. Um, But that's what he did. So the principle is that we receive in proportion to what we deeply desire to know. There are a whole lot of Christians out there going by in the highway and everywhere, you know, who don't really want to know details. They're just happy to have their fire insurance, aren't they? (laughs) Good. All right. Let's look at his first request, a general request from Daniel in verse 16. He says, I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. All right. We are not told the identity of the being to whom Daniel asked his questions, but most commentators agree that he was one of the multitudes of thousands of thousands of angels that stood around the throne. Okay, so this probably was an angel. Now, based on Daniel's um, uh, encounters with Gabriel later in chapter 8 and again in chapter 9, a lot of people speculate that this could also be Gabriel. And it could be. That would be my guess, but I don't know because we're not, we're not told. So whoever he was, we, we know this. We know the answers to Daniel's questions came from a heavenly, holy source. Therefore, what does that mean? They're 100% accurate. We can trust in the answer that he was given. Now, his first request, Daniel's first request, was for the truth of all this. He wanted to know the exact meaning of everything he had dreamed. It was a very general request. Uh, Essentially, he's asking for a summary. Summary explanation of his dream, and that's exactly what he got. Daniel tells us that his heavenly source gave him the interpretation of the dream, and the Aramaic word for interpretation speaks of unfolding that which wasn't clear and making it clear, interpreted it. A very important principle regarding the interpretation of symbolic, parabolic, apocalyptic, um, Prophecy is that even though the prophecy itself was given in symbols and pictures and stuff like that, yet the interpretation is to be taken literally. So the prophecy might be weird, but the interpretation of that prophecy is to be taken literally. Are you following me? That's a very important principle. So what the angel tells him, we can take literally. The four beasts are four kings that will arise, etc. So here's his general answer, verses 17 to 18. I just said some of it. The angel answers him and says, These great beasts, which are four, four in number, are four kings, which shall arise where? Out of the earth. That tells us that the great sea, back in verse 2, Remember that great sea that was stirred up was not the Mediterranean Sea. It was the great, it was the earth. So it's the great sea speaking of the, the whole earth of unredeemed people. That these beasts will come out of unredeemed mankind. 
Um, did I finish reading 18? Did I read? No. Okay, so he, he says that that's the explanation. This is a general explanation of the beasts. They come out of the earth, and then he contrasts it with the kingdom that will follow. He says in verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. You think that's going to be forever? I guess so. That's that's pretty clear there, forever and ever and ever. Now, the one who answered Daniel's request for the truth of his dream began by stating that the four beasts represent four kings. These four kings would arise out of the earth. Now, the terms kings and kingdoms are compatible ideas throughout Daniel's uh, dream. I mean, the king represents the kingdom. They're just... They're just synonymous with one another, and we'll see that later on as well. Now, in Hebrew numerology, the number four symbolizes what? What is the number four a picture of or symbol of? Earth. Earth. How many seasons are there? Four seasons. Uh, Four corners of the earth, four directions, north, south, east, west. There's a lot of fours connected with the earth. But the number four represents the earth. These four beastly kingdoms all have an earthly origin. They originate out of the earth. They have an earthly foundation. And uh, they're supported by earthly means. And they have an earth-bound world view. Anyone out there in the world without Christ has what kind of world view? A worldly world view? <laughs> A worldly world view. That's really worldly, isn't it? Um, but that, that is what he's pointing out, is that is in great contrast with the kingdom that will follow all these four beasts, you know, the times of the Gentiles. The kingdom that will follow has a heavenly origin, and a heavenly foundation is supported by heavenly means and has a God-centered view. You and I don't have the world view. That's why we you know, conflict with so many things going on in the world. There's the secular view, and then there's the God-centered view, and the the Christological view. I don't know what you want to call it. Theological view. That's what you and I should have. Um, And so this kingdom is going to be different, and that stands out by the word but. A distinctive feature of the kingdom of God is that while it was specifically said, and this is in verse 18, to be given to the Son of Man. Remember back in verse 13? The Ancient of Days gives it to the Son of Man, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So it's specifically said to be given to the Son of Man, the coming kingdom, the millennial 1,000-year kingdom of heaven that will be on earth. And yet, just as specifically three times in this chapter, that kingdom is said to be given to the saints of the Most High. The saints of El Elyon, that's just a name for God. So the same dominion and the same rule that is given to Christ is then given by him to the saints who will reign with him and rule with him. The millennial kingdom will, ha- will be an earthly material kingdom. It will have a, an earthly nature. It's going to look a lot like this world. I mean, there's going to be trees and roads and, I guess, trucks going by and, and grass. I mean, it's going to be far more beautiful. And uh, Christ will be reigning. And lions will lie down with lambs. And you can let your child play if you want to in a snake pit. I'm still not going to do that. But <laughs> uh, but it's going to be earthly, physical, okay? But that's going to be its, its nature. But it's going to be spiritual and holy in character. That will be different, won't it? That will be really, really refreshing. So the atmosphere throughout those 1,000 years is going to be continual joy in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Amen. Because at last, you know that prayer we've prayed so many times? The Lord's Prayer, which really should be called the Disciples' Prayer, where he said, uh, when we pray, your will be done in heaven as it is, I mean, on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will always done in heaven? Yes. Is it always done on earth? 
No, not hardly. Um, but then it will be. God's will will be fulfilled on earth just as it is in heaven. And I can think of at least three of the Beatitudes of Jesus that will be fulfilled. Remember, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven on earth. And then he said, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then the last one, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Three, at least three of the Beatitudes, well, all of the Beatitudes will be fulfilled. Now, I want you to be cautious. You know, I do a lot of research on the Internet now for these studies because there's just a wealth of information out there. But you have to have discernment because there's also a wealth of crazy stuff out there. I punch in, I Google, I say, what, what about this, you know, or what about Daniel 725? And then all these things pop up and some of them are just way out there, way out there. So be careful, be cautious of interpretations that say the saints in Daniel that Daniel is talking about, are exclusively New Testament saints. You know, that he's speaking of church saints. And you know when I say saint, I'm not talking about someone who's been approved by a church and is put up on a pedestal and um, memorialized. I mean, that's what I grew up learning about certain saints and how they were martyred, etc., etc. So it, it was when somebody first said that I was a saint, I had a struggle with that. I said, you kidding me? But then I got to liking it. St. Catherine. I mean, I kind of like <laughs> But saints, saints are anyone who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all saints. All right? Um, so some people will say that when he says saints, that the saints will rule that he's speaking about church saints or tribulation saints, people who will come to know Christ after the rapture of the church. Um, they'll come to know Christ during the seven years of the tribulation, are called tribulation saints. Beware of that interpretation. Um, do you know that Daniel knew nothing at all about New the New Testament or New Testament saints or the church or tri the tribulation? He didn't know anything about that, okay? And it was originally to the Jews that the Messianic kingdom was promised. On the other hand, now, be cautious of interpretations that assume that Daniel's reference to the saints is speaking only of Old Testament saints, Jewish people who really believed in Jehovah and his promise of a coming Savior and Gentile proselytes to that faith. I have news for you, and it's really good news. God has a very, very large family. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. His family is huge. The saints of all ages are going to enter into and enjoy the time of Christ's reign on earth. Do you know that we will get to know all the Old Testament saints? Not just the famous ones, but a lot of them we never even heard of. But we'll be able to walk over to Moses and Abraham and talk to David. It's just awesome. It's going to take a thousand years just to meet everybody, isn't it? <laughs> so the family of God, the family of God, the saints include saved Jews and saved Gentiles of both the Old and New Testament ages. In fact, the kingdom of God on earth is going to include both resurrected saints like us. You know, when we're living in the millennial kingdom, we will be in our glorified bodies. But... We won't need trucks. That's right. <laughs> but we'll be reigning with people who, when the Lord returns at the second coming, will be alive and believe in him, and they'll just enter right into the millennial kingdom in their earthly bodies. So not only will there be Jews and Gentiles and Old Testament and New Testament, but they'll be resurrected and living all together. Oh, it's going to be so cool. <laughs> and... Uh, the son of man will be the king. He'll rule from Jerusalem and Israel. He'll be the king. But all the offices under him, and I don't know what kind of government structure there's going to be, but all, <laughs> I was thinking as I come in and I see all these um, signs, you know, vote for so-and-so for uh, the Senate or the House of Representatives or to be a judge or for the Board of Education, our names might be on those signs. <laughs> Nah, I don't think there's going to be any more elections. Yay. 
Uh, but the, the whole thing, he'll be the king and we'll be reigning with him. Everything is going to be in the hands of holy people. People who love, obey, and worship God. People who live and govern and judge righteously. That is going to be one glorious new day, isn't it? Hmm. You know, older people like me, I am one of them now. Older people like to talk about the good old days. And we do, don't we? Oh, the good old days. I just wish it was, and I do, I wish it was like the good old days. Um, But you know what? The golden age of the world is not behind us. It's not in the past. It's in the future. Look what we have to look forward to. A thousand years with Christ here on earth and then ushered right into the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth to live with him forever and ever and ever. And who knows what he has in store for us? Wow. Amazing to think about. We can't even imagine it, can we? All right. That was his specific, uh, his what was that? I don't even know where I was. That was the general answer. Okay, now we're going to get into the specific request. So look with me at verses 19 to 22. This takes Daniel a long time to ask the uh, angel. He says, this is Daniel speaking, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns, he wants to know about the ten horns, that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel was apparently satisfied with the answer he got from the angel about the first three beasts. Because he didn't ask any more about them. However, he definitely wanted to know more about that exceeding dreadful fourth beast. So he asked his interpreter a more specific question. He wanted to know the truth of the fourth beast. Why? Well, because he was diverse from the others. He was different. I mean, did any of the other three beasts have iron teeth? No, they didn't. Uh... And iron teeth in the Bible, strong teeth, sometimes it's called great teeth in the Bible. That speaks of, uh, that's a, a symbol for the cruelty of a devouring enemy. And this beast also had brass nails, speaking of, you know, fingernails, brass nails. Now that's new information. Daniel didn't tell us that before. He didn't describe that aspect of the beast back in verse 7. So this dreadful fourth beast had uh, iron teeth, brass nails, and stomping feet. We already knew about that. Stomping feet. Have you ever seen a child have a tantrum? What do they do when they're having the tantrum? They stomp their feet. That indicates a a disposition to uh, destroy with wrath. I mean, it definitely shows wrath or rage. Um, In this case, just for the sake of destroying or preventing others from enjoying liberty or even life itself. This dreadful fourth beast had stomping feet, iron teeth, uh, brass nails, and he wanted to destroy anything that got in its path. Now, these things, combined with the fact that ten horns came out of its head, that troubled Daniel. That pierced him enough that he wanted to know more about it. This sounded to him not like just an earthly beast. There was more to it. This sounded more to him like a satanic monster. And was it? Is it going to be? Yes, yes. Of greatest curiosity to Daniel was the other which came up. See that in verse 20? The other which came up from the midst of the ten horns. Uh, Earlier he had referred to this other as the little horn. Back in verse 8, he wanted to know who was this strange horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things. Who was this person who was going to cause the fall of three of the ten kings 
and then would become more stout than all the rest of them. After he put down three, more stout means greater. Who was this person? Yeah, he he wanted to know more about what many, many, many thousands of people over the centuries have wanted to know more about, and he that is the Antichrist. He wanted to know more about the Antichrist. Do you know how many books have been written about the Antichrist? I would like to spend uh, maybe one lesson, if I can squeeze it in somewhere, um, about the Antichrist, get into more details, because there are books out there that say he's going to be a Muslim. There are books out there that definitely say he's going to be a Jew. There's books out there that say just about everything and anything. You know, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist at one time. <laughs> There's been a lot. There is always in the world the spirit of the Antichrist. But one day there is going to be a literal, one, a man, a literal Antichrist. So I want to do a lesson on that. Uh, the stoutness mentioned is in reference to the increased greatness of the little horn. The power and the prominence of the little horn apparently increase immediately after he causes the fall of three horns, three kings. Remember, there's ten. He causes the fall of three of them. And then apparently that intimidates the other seven so much that he begins to take for himself a place of leadership over the entire revived Roman Empire. Daniel was concerned about him because in his vision... He saw this, this man and his kingdom making war with the saints and prevailing over them. Now that term, and that's new news too. We hadn't heard about that in the dream. So this is new, that he saw in his dream this horn making war with the saints. The term warring with the saints, that speaks of great persecution. The term prevailing of over them, that speaks of Success, overcoming them. However, however, I have to qualify that. The success, the uh, prevailing of the stout horn, the Antichrist, over the saints during what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. You know, the Tribulation is seven years long. It's that last seven years from the great 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9 that still hasn't been fulfilled. It begins when Israel signs a, a, a covenant promise, a covenant with death with the Antichrist, not knowing who he is. Um, and that begins it and it ends with his second coming. But the first three and a half years, I guess I should do this for you guys the other way. The first three and a half years is called the beginning of sorrows. Jesus called it that in the Olivet Discourse. And the last three and a half years, which begins when he breaks his covenant treaty with Israel, sets up an abomination of desolation in the Holy Temple. And uh, that begins the last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. And so apparently in the middle probably is when he subdues three of those ten kings that he's reigning with. And... um, and then all hell really breaks out on earth. Uh, but I was talking about how he doesn't really overcome the saints that he, that he martyrs. Because one, for one thing, the souls of those martyred saints are merely unsheathed. i got to use that from now on. Unsheathed from their bodies, right? And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as soon as he martyrs them... Their soul, their true person, is ushered into heaven, and John sees them. The Apostle John, in uh, Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, sees the souls of the martyred tribulation saints, and where are they? They're under the altar of, in heaven, in the temple of heaven, in heaven. And they're awaiting the end of the great tribulation. So that's one aspect of not really being overcome. The other is that not all the tribulation saints will be killed. They won't all be killed. There is a limit, and not all Israel will be killed. There's a limit to the satanic war against them, and that's signified by the word until. In verse 22, the little turned stout horn will persecute and martyr the saints until, until the coming of the Ancient of Days, who is identified in Revelation as the Lamb. That makes it pretty clear who the Ancient of Days is in verse 22. It is the lamb who overcomes the beast and his kingdom. Revelation 17, 14. The lamb is also called in Revelation 17, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So who is the ancient of days that comes and overcomes the beast? 
that's pretty clear. Is there's only one Lamb who is worthy, and He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so the term "ancient of days" that was used probably for God the Father in uh, verse seven to thirteen. Well, it has to be because there's two persons of the Trinity in that verse. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man comes to him is also very clearly used for God the Son now in verse 22. Do you know the scripture never speaks about the Father coming to earth? God the Father never comes to earth. Never. The only member of the Trinity, well, not really. The Holy Spirit comes to earth too. Uh, but the Father never does. But the Son has made that trip many times. <laughs> In his pre-incarnate appearances, his first coming, and of course he's going to make it again. He didn't make it in 70 AD, though, but he will make it at the end of the tribulation. All right, let's look at the specific answer he gets, Daniel gets, in verses 23 to 27. Thus he, now this is the angel, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth. Now, isn't that interesting? You see what I mean about king and kingdom being used synonymously? Because earlier he said the four beasts are four kings, but here he says the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and a dividing of time. That's three and a half years. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom, that's of course the appearance of the smiting stone. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and glorify him. Who is the him? The Most High God. All right. It was time for the heavenly interpreter to respond. And because Daniel's second request was more specific, he gets a more specific answer. And he covers, in his answer, he uncovers, he uh, covers four subjects. He speaks about, I think I have those up here, the fourth beast, the ten kings, the eleventh king, who is that little horn, the Antichrist, and then the everlasting kingdom, the final kingdom, the final king. The angel told Daniel that the fourth beast pictured a fourth kingdom. This isn't new to us. We've gone over it and over and over it, right? You know that. The fourth kingdom is pictured by that fourth dreadful Beast who is different, diverse from all the others. As mentioned, he has iron teeth. Uh, he's, he's different in power because he has the iron teeth and the brass um, claw, I mean, yeah, brass nails and the stamping feet, etc. So he's different in his power and he's different in his terror because he devours, he destroys, he breaks in pieces, he just terrorizes everyone who stands in his path or its path for world conquest, this fourth beast, you know, just stomps its way through the world. Now, although the fourth beast in its first stage, which was the ancient Roman Empire, remember there's three stages of the fourth beast, and the old stage, the first stage was the old Roman Empire. That Roman Empire never did conquer the whole earth, did it? No. It didn't. It didn't get over to America. It didn't get to China. It didn't cover the whole earth. Yet, it did have an influence to the four corners of the world. Our Senate, our government is set up basically on Roman government principles. Um, there was the Roman law, uh, the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. It really did have, Rome had an influence to the four corners of the earth. Um, in fact, its impact is such that the last man-made Gentile kingdom to rule on earth is going to rise somehow or another from its ashes. You know, it's connected. The iron legs were connected to the toes of iron and clay mixed. And the ten horns come out of the fourth beast. So there's a connection with ancient Rome. And that's why we call the 
second stage of the fourth beast, the revived Roman Empire. You really have to think clearly up here. (laughs) So in summary, ancient Rome exerted power over much of the known world in its day, but it never conquered the entire world. But out of it will arise the Antichrist, and he and his kingdom will exert power over the whole world. You know, the the final kingdom of the Antichrist will be worldwide. It will be worldwide. Now, the ten horns of the fourth beast, the angel said, we already knew this, are ten kings who will arise. Because of their emergence from the head of the fourth beast, this is going to be a yet future coalition of ten rulers, not necessarily kings, but heads of state or rulers or some kind of big mucky mucks over ten different parts of the whole. You know, they've already divided the whole world into ten major big sections. Ten rulers or ten guys in the, uh, the EU or the UN or who knows what. But these, these ten guys um, come out of the fourth beast, so they are going to have a connection with ancient Rome. And I don't care what the full preterists or the preterists or the historicists say, there has never been a coalition of ten rulers reigning at the same time. Now, some of those wacky things you can read on the internet internet say that this has already been fulfilled, that the ten kings were the ten Caesars, although there were twelve in the time period, but they say, well, the number isn't important. Um, So there's twelve, but we'll make it ten. So they may try to make them Caesars. They try to make them popes. You know, ten different popes. But there were never ten Caesars or ten popes reigning simultaneously. These guys all reign at the same time. Plus, as I said, they're reigning when the Son of Man, the Smiting Stone, comes. And he hasn't come yet. So we know that this is a yet future version of the old Roman Empire. Now, the little horn about whom Daniel was most curious is identified by the angelic interpreter as another ruler who will arise from the midst of those ten kings. This is the Antichrist. Now, that's the easiest name to call him, but he has many names. He's called the wicked. He's called the man of lawlessness. He's called the beast out of the sea. That gives you a clue. Is he a Jew? That's a clue. He's not a Jew. (laughs) He comes out of the sea, not the land. He is not going to be Jewish. And I can give you other reasons. Um, There are more than 100 passages in the scripture that tell us about the Antichrist, his character, his words, his works. So that statistic alone tells us we should not avoid the doctrine of the Antichrist. Some people are afraid to study about the Antichrist. You know, it doesn't frighten me because I'm not looking for him. I'm not looking for the Antichrist to come. I'm looking for the Christ to come. And take me out of here. Well, in his description of the worst world ruler that this earth is going to see, and we've seen some really, really bad guys. Wow, really bad. But he's going to be like a combination of all of them. The angel touched on four things about him. His rise to power, his words, his war, and his end. All right, the coalition of ten kings will already be in existence when this 11th king, the Antichrist, comes on the scene. He's not going to have a whole lot of significant power at the beginning because what is he called at the beginning? The little horn. His rise to power occurs um, as it becomes increasingly evident that this guy is special. He is charismatic. I mean, he's going to have personality and everybody's just going to, at the beginning, just going to love him and just think he is everything. You know, he's just great, wonderful. Um, it's going to be evident that he's intelligent. Now, this wasn't mentioned by the angel, but it was mentioned by Daniel twice that he has eyes. The horn has eyes. And eyes in the scripture speak of insight, uh, wisdom. Uh, So this indicates that the little horn is not only going to be a literal man, but he's going to be a very intelligent man, worldly speaking. As I said, eyes symbolize wisdom. Remember the eyes on the rims of the wheels of the chariot of God. Um, And keen observation and comprehension. But the wisdom and the insight of this little horn is going to be perverted wisdom, perverted by evil. So he will use his intellect, his intellectual shrewdness, to cunningly deceive. And he would deceive even the elect if it was possible. 
Remember back in Genesis 3.5, I always want to say 3.15, but Genesis 3.5, remember the serpent's promise to Eve that if she rebelled against God and ate from the forbidden tree, what would happen? Her eyes would be open and she would be as a god. The Antichrist, the Apostle Paul says, is the man of sin. He describes him as one whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs. He's going to do some amazing signs and lying wonders. He's even going to resurrect from the dead by a sword wound, a fatal sword wound to his head. Here it says lying wonders. And with all deceivableness unto, of unrighteousness. That's in Second Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. He's going to be a counterfeit Christ, isn't he? In every way. But he will be no match for the true Christ. I don't care how intelligent he is. He will, he's no match for the omniscient Savior. So for the third time in Daniel 7... We read that the little horn is going to exert power over three of the kings with whom he co-reigns for a while. And those three heads of state, I don't know what they'll do. Apparently, they'll, they'll challenge him. Maybe, maybe they'll oppose him or defy in some way his growing authority. I mean, after all, they were ruling prior to him um, coming on the scene. It says that he came after them in verse 24. Uh, I think in that, remember the Left Behind series? I read it so long ago, but I think in that series, doesn't he assassinate those three guys? Yeah, he did. And then the others are so intimidated that they just, you know, they submit to him. Um, But in verse 8, it says that uh, Daniel saw them plucked up by the roots And in verse 20, he says uh, he saw them fall before this rising 11th horn. And now, in the angel's expanded explanation, we learn that the Antichrist will completely subdue, completely subdue those three plucked and fallen uh, kings. I don't think they're assassinated. I think they just, he does something and they just totally you know, keep quiet after that. And so do the other seven. His tremendous ego... And he's going to have an ego like nothing we have ever seen. His ego will not tolerate anyone questioning him about anything. So, something else. The little horn has a big mouth. I almost thought of that as a title for this lesson. The little horn with the big mouth. In verse 25, we find he says great things. Now, those aren't great good things. Those are great bad things because we find out in verses 8 and 20, he speaks against the Most High. He will defy and oppose El Elyon, God Almighty. He'll speak publicly against him, blaspheming him, (laughs) blaspheming him on radio, on television, on the Internet, any chance he gets. He will blaspheme God. That's, that's the size of his ego. Um, in chapter 8, we learn that he will magnify himself in his heart. Who does that sound like to you? Say, Lucifer, remember? Did the same thing long, long ago. And it says he will even stand up against the prince of princes. Who is that? Jesus, that's 825 of Daniel. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we read that he will exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he will even sit as God in the temple of God to show himself that he is God. That is the abomination of desolation, sitting there in the holy of holies of the temple proclaiming that he is God, deceiving himself into thinking he is God. This guy is possessed by Satan. In Revelation 13, we are told that he will blaspheme the person of God, he will blaspheme the name of God, he will blaspheme the temple of God, and he will even blaspheme those who live with God in heaven, the angels and the resurrected saints. And he will demand that everyone worship him as God or what? Now, the Antichrist, of course, he can't take out his hatred against God or against Christ, so who will he take out his hatred against? Whatever I said. 
believers, the saints, of course. He'll launch a vicious attack on believers and literally wear them out. Freedom of religion will no longer exist on planet Earth. You don't want to be around during the tribulation. I promise you. Make sure you are saved and you go in the rapture before it all starts. (laughs) And at the height of his egotistical climb to power... He will get this great idea. He will think to change times and laws, which is a privilege that belongs to God alone as creator. Who made up time? God and laws. He's the creator and ordainer of time and laws. But the, uh, the sin of this final king is that in his attempt to put himself above God, <clears throat> it's going to include his total disregard for God's, the God-given fundamentals of time and laws. And so I got to thinking about this, and I did a lot of research and was reading about it. One of the first things he probably will do is change the seven-day week to some other length of a week. Because the seven-day week is to remind us of the creation week, right? Lord made everything in six days, and he rested on the seventh. He's going to do away with the Sabbath day. He might make it a 13-day week. I'm just picking 13. Um, you know, back in the French Revolution days, they actually changed the week to a 10-day week. Did you know that? So that he'll probably change the week. What holidays do you think he'll definitely get rid of? Christmas and Resurrection Day, Easter. All right. I imagine he'll make holidays that celebrate his birth. Because he's a literal man. He's probably already on planet Earth today. He's probably already been born. I don't know what his birth would be. I wanted to speculate that it would be Halloween, but that made somebody mad yesterday because she was born on Halloween. <laughs> um, but they'll probably, you know, want to celebrate his birthday. And then remember, he has that resurrection from the dead. So he'll probably make a holiday out of the day that he rose from the dead. He is such a counterfeiter, Satan is. And then also, I know he'll get rid of the seven God-given feast days of Israel. He's going to get rid of uh, Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Trumpets, all, Rosh Hashanah, you know, all that. He's going to get rid of that and substitute his own. And then because we know the Jews again will have their temple and they will have reinstituted the temple sacrifices, he's going to cease the temple sacrifices. And, uh, and, the, and the Jews will probably, again, be following the laws of Leviticus. He'll get rid of all of that and substitute his own laws. Plus, he'll change the calendar because our calendar is based on the birth of Christ, Right. B.C., before Christ, and Anno Domino, the year of our Lord. The secular world is already doing that because what have they changed uh, B.C. and A.D. for? B.C.E. and C.E., before the common era and common era. We are living in the common era. That's not too exciting, is it? I refuse to do that. I will never do that. I will never, ever, ever, as long as I live, write B.C.E. and E. It's always going to be B.C., before Christ. See, they change the C from Christ to common. I don't even, I never write Xmas. I'm sorry. I don't. I never write Xmas because I don't want to substitute Christ for an X. I always write it out. Christ, Christmas. All right. <clears throat> so the Antichrist, I had this idea too. I bet he'll take away the Ten Commandments and substitute his own commandments. And again, I use the number 13. Um, So I came up with 13 commandments that the Antichrist will have. They might go something like this. Thou shalt have no other God but me. Thou shalt bow down to the graven image of me. Thou shalt serve me alone. Thou shalt take the name of that other God in vain. Thou shalt forget his Sabbath day. Thou shalt not honor any father or mother who does not honor me. Thou shalt report any family member or friend who does not worship me. Thou shalt kill as necessary anyone who disobeys me or fails to worship me. Thou shalt know it is okay to commit adultery and every other sexual practice under the sun. Thou shalt steal, thou shalt bear false witness, and thou shalt covet if and when doing so benefits my kingdom. After all, the ends justify the end justifies the mean. And last, number thirteen, thou shalt take my mark upon you. You like those thirteen commandments? I don't. The dragon's power will be given to the Antichrist for a time, times, and the dividing of time, 
don't have time to get into that <laughs> time, but it's three and a half years. Just trust me on that one. The stout part of the Antichrist reign is going to be those last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation. It will begin when Antichrist uh, breaks his covenant with Israel, attempts to force her allegiance to him, sets up temp- um, uh, abomination of himself in the temple. And then when those last three and a half years come to an end, the long-awaited time of divine judgment will finally have arrived. That heavenly court that we saw in session back in the earlier part of the chapter, that heavenly court scene will be in session. The thrones will be arrayed around the ancient of days who at long last, no man knows the hour of the day. That's not about the rapture. That's about this. At last, he will give the signal to the son of man to go forth with the armies of heaven, which will include all the angels and you and I, the church saints, to take away the dominion of the unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The coalition, you know, that's the time of the smiting stone. And that coalition of, of nations will be broken up. And the entire revived Roman Empire, along with the whole anti-God times of the Gentiles, that whole statue will be, it will come to a screeching, crashing end, right? And the wind will blow any remembrance of it away, and hallelujah, it will be gone forever. The wicked one may oppress, and he may prevail over, and he may wear out and martyr the saints for a while, but judgment will come. It will come. And when it does, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be severe. And it is going to be a sure thing. You can count on it. And then the everlasting dominion of the Son of Man who will reign with his saints over this earth. I mean, everything is going to be ruled by loving, God-fearing people. And it is going to be fantastic. Let me close with the last verse. His pensive response, Daniel says, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. He was greatly moved by everything that he had seen and then that had been interpreted to him. But when he woke up, what did he do? He meditated on it. He pondered it. Reminds me of Mary after hearing the report from the Bethlehemite shepherds. She kept all those things in her heart, didn't she? He did not at this time share this with his people, with his contemporaries. Of course, he was inspired to write it all down, and they eventually did hear about it and did read it. But at that time, it was, it was too much for him, and he didn't want to pass that burden on to his people. So we have now come to the end of the Aramaic section of, of Daniel. We'll be in Hebrew from now on. Not that that's going to make a difference to us, right, because it's all English to us, but... Um, God has finished telling us his plan for history as it relates to the Gentiles. From here on, chapter 8 to 12, we'll learn about God's plan for the nation of Israel. Okay? So come back. We don't come back in two weeks. This time, because of Thanksgiving, we come back in three weeks. So it's November 29th. All right? I'll see you then. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the patience of your people. Thank you for their desire to know more to have more enlightenment, and I pray, Lord, that you will bless them for that. And thank you, Father, for that day that we will inherit the kingdom of heaven with you and how we long for that day. And, Lord, I just pray again that your will will be done on this very important day for our nation. I know we don't deserve it, but I ask you, Lord, God bless America, and may America bless you. We pray in the name of the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lamb, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.